This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Hello, everyone. This is Angela Evans, and this is Policy on Purpose. And I am so, so pleased today to be having some time to spend with the Honorable John Crusoe. When I asked him what he should be called, the Honorable or whatever, he said, just call me John. And I said, I can't do that because the office is a very high office. So um, John, which I'll do at this podcast, is now serving as the district attorney for uh, Dallas County, but has an incredible public service history um, as a DA and as a judge and has done enormous amount of work uh, in terms of understanding um, the prison population, understanding people who get caught up in crime and what to do with them uh, when they meet and when they come into a court. Um, And I'm very pleased to uh, have him here. I have some questions, and I think what we're going to be doing is having a conversation because before the podcast we talked. He has a lot to say. He's an enormously talented uh, man with a lot of different ideas. So I'm so pleased to have you here with well, us thank today. You. Glad to be here. So we talked a little bit um, when we were meeting. And one of the things that we talked about is uh, when you get into an organization in the past, when you're soloing it or you have one other colleague, it's one thing to do your own work, be independent, do your do your investigations, et cetera, and prepare your own arguments. But now you're running an entire agency with hundreds of people uh, with different perspectives. So talk to us a little bit about how the work you did uh, building up to that has really helped you in terms of how you're going to run or are you running right now the um, the office? Well, first of all, going from a private practice to 400-plus employees is overwhelming. And I spent, well, I've only been there two months, so I certainly spent the first, yeah, yeah. the first two to three weeks just trying to get a grip on what was there and, and who was in a certain place. And um, it became obvious to me over this two-month period that, there needs to be a culture change and that the vast majority of people there are prosecutors, the upper staff. They've, that's what they've spent their lives doing. They have maybe some of them have some criminal defense experience, but not many. And even if so, they've still dedicated their lives to being a prosecutor. And what I've learned is, is that prosecutors are like many other lawyers. Um, we decide how to go forward by looking back, right? It's called mm-hmm. precedent. And so we don't progress very quickly. <laughs> and it's part of your culture. Part of my culture, right. <laughs> right. And, but the, on the other hand, uh, here I am where I've looked at different things and tried different things and looked at research and tried to put together a research-based approach to criminal justice. And so the challenge is with these 400 people, 270 so who are lawyers, is to get them to stop thinking about doing things a certain way just because they did it that way. And instead, think about what is the goal and has your decision um, forwarded yourself towards the goal. If we're trying to reduce crime, reduce recidivism, the reflexive action of putting someone in jail just because they violated their probation is not going to do that. Uh, this idea that jail is our default or prison is our default uh, posture in criminal justice has to stop. We ruin a lot of people's lives. We create recidivism in, in doing that. Uh, we create mass incarceration. We create disparities in sentencing. 
and we're just not smart. And when, when we have decided in the state of Texas to get smart on crime back in 2005, that legislative session, the 2007, 9, and 11 legislative sessions, when we focused on assessments and we focused on treatment, we actually reduced our prison population from 150,000 to today it's about 141,000. Now, mind you, back in 2005, it was projected that we would need 17,000 more prison beds, up to 167. So that's quite a difference drop, and yes. quite mm-hmm. a savings yeah. uh, to the taxpayer. So the, the main thing that, 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 that my, my main challenge is, I think, the changing of the culture and trying to help them understand that what we are all complicit in creating this system. The police are complicit by their arrest and their charging. We're complicit by accepting the cases and moving forward with them. The judges are complicit by the way they handle the cases. The defense lawyers are complicit in the way they handle their clients, and the defendants are complicit in the way they make decisions about their cases often. So it's kind of a a system where everybody's got a piece of this action Mm -hmm. that has gone in the wrong direction, and trying to correct that is is my mission. Mm -hmm. Well, when you were talking about this earlier, it made me think about some of the very things we all— we are all challenged with and when you're dealing with the public agency. Mm-hmm. It's like a big ecosystem, and you've got different components, and it's trying to bring that all together at once. But yet yes. you have to look at individual needs and, mm-hmm. like you say, individual precedent. Um, because most people want to do a good job. So what happens is they come in and they get into a rut or a pattern, and they don't often think the way you're thinking. Um so what is your, what do you think is your, going to be your biggest challenge? You've only been two months in, so it's kind of an unfair question because you really haven't had a chance to do a, you know, a really deep dive into all of these. But going in, what do you think is going to be your biggest challenges in moving them away from sort of this typical way of looking at things versus looking at evidence and, and looking at individual cases and thinking about the principles upon which you're going to make well, decisions? Well, I, I think you just named it. I mean, looking at individual cases, thinking about, thinking about principles that make sense, mm-hmm. that create public safety, as opposed to just a reflexive, you know, you violated your probation, you go to prison. Um, I have found that even though we, we conduct, the, or the probation department conducts risk needs assessments, nobody reads them, mm-hmm. and they don't know what they mean. Are they, are they don't read them because they're not forced to or they're too long or they're not in plain English or they, there's just never been an expectation? Well, when I was a judge, I did some training back many years ago with the DAs on what is a pre-sentence report, what are the components of it, and what can you, you know, what kind of decisions can you make off of this? But that was many prosecutors and many years ago. We now have an entire generation that has no relationship to that. The other thing is is we no longer in the state of Texas, to my knowledge, train judges on evidence-based sentencing practices. And I did that for a number of years, not only for the College of New Judges, but also in individual settings, we would do that. That's no longer done. So the judges, I'm not sure, really understand and appreciate. The other thing, the other component is the probation department. They're the ones who are conducting these assessments. If they're not well-trained and if they're not doing a good job, you know, it's garbage in, it's garbage out. And I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of that, not just on the risk assessments, but on psychological assessments. 
where they've made some pretty drastic conclusions about people that's not supported by any evidence whatsoever. They just decided to do that and then won't back down. And so, you know, the other component of this that's complicit in in where we are and that left it out is the probation department. And because they're doing all this for the judges. The other thing is big issue um, that we've discussed is when should the judge read the pre-sentence report? And one of the practices that we fell into for many, many years is putting a person on probation, then having the risk needs assessment done and and screening and possible assessment. Yeah. Well, you've already put them on probation. And let's say they're a drug addicted person. They're not likely to come in anytime soon to get this done. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we changed in Dallas back in the mid 2000s. Uh, where we require before the plea or before the sentencing that all of these assessments be done and we would not allow the lawyers to plea bargain because they have no understanding of different levels of treatment and they have no understanding of risk needs. Mm -hmm. And so we would fashion the terms and conditions of probation according to the assessments. And what we found was we had a 59% drop in technical violations when we did it that way. Well, now I don't even know which judges are doing risk assessments and all the other assessments prior to placing a person on probation because, as we talked about earlier, I've yet to have a meeting with the judges, even though I've requested the district judges, even though I've requested twice to meet with them. I've gotten no response. So um, I'm not really certain what's going on, but it may get to the point, and they don't have to talk to me, that's fine, but it may get to a point where I just, well, we're not going to sign any plea papers until, until we have that this, done. Yeah. And I'm sure that'll be quite controversial, yeah. and I don't know. You'd rather not. Yeah, I mean, you'd rather, rather get not, engaged and do yeah. it from the ground up and have people enroll in it and, and agree to it and see it. Well, so when everything works better collaboratively, as long as you're doing the right thing. If you're moving in the right direction, if you have to fight somebody to do it, then it becomes a turf battle. And judges um, um, have their turf. I don't care who they are, what their background is. When they get elected and they become a judge of a court, that's their turf. Mm -hmm. And whether they understand these principles or not, it's still their turf. And you you find yourself getting sometimes in battles that spill over into trials and this and that. And you get, you know, different rulings because they're mad at you about something else. And It's like human nature in any it kind is. of a system. It's human nature. Yeah. This it, is a high-risk uh, environment because it's the law and we have right. the rule of law. Right. I think one of the things that I'm interested in talking to you about, because I think a lot of people in public service who are in leadership worry about this, is like you have a personality, you have a, a dynamic approach to things that's new. Once you get that done, how do you sustain it? I mean, how do you sustain it beyond you? Because part of it is you get some really great people in that's there and they've question. got a lot of they've got a lot of motivation, a lot of energy, lots of great ideas, and then they leave and then people go back or settle into a different way, you know. Um, not that different isn't better, but they'll sometimes say, I'll just outlast him or her, and then when he goes or she goes, we go back to the way that was easier for me. So did you, are you thinking about how you can sustain 
this type of approach? Well, this you sustain it through numbers. Number one, you show you you. One of the things we don't have, I was told, oh, we have this robust, you know, data system. Well, you start asking questions, and then no, we don't do that. No, we don't do this. And well, it's not so it's robust so after all. Yes. <laughs> and yeah. then and then there was an article in the paper where they're they're so frustrated with it that they're going to trash it. So there that goes. We have to start all over. That might not be a bad idea, though, to start all over in terms of what you need uh, in terms of Dallas data. For Dallas County, it's not a good idea. No, Dallas no. County has a history of deciding that in, in, as far as data and in, in mo- moving people in cases and, you know, even who's in jail and who's not, they, they have a long history of deciding to create a system mm-hmm. rather than purchase a system and oh. adjust it. And this is not the first time that we have gone along and spent millions and millions of dollars and decided, oh, we messed up. This doesn't work. The company's gone bankrupt or this, that, or the other. But anyway, back to your yes. question. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to communicate to the staff is that uh, they are the leaders. Not I'm not the leader. And that this is about their future, that they are the future leaders, that I've been licensed since 1982. And I've done all these various and sundry things and had uh, success, national success and national recognition. But that doesn't have anything to do with their decision making today. And that my goal is to create new leaders um, from them. Now, not each and every one of them will be a leader because that's just not the way it works. Mm -hmm. But there are some who want to be leaders. And so I am willing to spend time with them individually to give them assignments so that they can can become leaders. I mean, if I look back at, at the whole group of lawyers that I was with, you know, I'm probably the only one who, well, not the only one, but one of few who's really become a leader in a sense. Uh, the vast majority are still practicing law, maybe about to retire or whatever, but um, so leadership is not for everyone. Um, but I'm trying to provide um, an environment where those who want to be leaders can become leaders and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and do so um, with the right idea that, number one, we've over-incarcerated. Okay? Number two, we've incarcerated the wrong people based on race and based on wealth or lack of wealth. And number three, this default position that everybody needs to go to jail is false and wrong and often creates more problems uh, for the individual and for the community, and we need to get off of it. Now, part of that is also communicating that to the police departments and the, and the police chiefs mm-hmm. because they want to take people to jail a lot of times. And that's not always the best answer, especially on low-level offenses. So it's a challenge across the board, not just to the staff, but to other stakeholders and probation officers, you know, uh, trying to com- communicate that to them. So, well, it seems like you. One of the things that I think is really important uh, when you're dealing with uh, a big sea change, and when you're dealing with the bureaucracy, and you're dealing with a lot of different folks in the bureaucracy, is the leader has, you know, the principles. These are the principles upon which we're going to operate. Yes. And if it supports the principles we're in, if it's neutral, we'll think about it. If it's not, we're not doing it. Yes. And I think sometimes we think that's just such common sense. You know why? 
verbalize it, but I've come to believe that that's so important uh, that people get it. And having succession planning where you're giving people who are the next generation of leaders opportunities to be with you or be with other leaders so they can learn um, how to do that. That's really important. And it's hard because you're operating you're operating an agency that has to you know have a product, has to have a service, has to do well. At the same time, you're trying to move it into a different place. Right. And I think that's a big challenge uh, people in your well, position face. Yeah, and it's a simple way, to, simple way to start it off, and it's called a mission statement. So we had a mission statement for Divert Court, which was the first diversion court in the state of Texas, and it was quite successful. Uh, we actually brought in SMU. Uh, I saw that, that you asked them to actually study this yes. uh, from, a, from an analytic objective perspective. Yes. yes. So we had some students in the psychology department uh, do their thesis, and they did a recidivism study, and we had a 68% reduction in recidivism that hadn't been seen in the state of Texas. Nobody had ever, if they did it, nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had um, the economics department come in, and some students did a cost-benefit analysis. And, and actually, their numbers are small, so it's for every dollar spent, they were $9.34 and avoided criminal justice costs. That didn't that's just avoided criminal justice costs. That, that's not talking about not going to the hospital. That's not right. talking about supporting, having a job, supporting your kids, paying taxes, et cetera. So you know if you put all those numbers in, it would have been even more impressive. Um, so, um, you know, a mission statement guides the principles of the entity, and we had a mission statement that we developed for Divert Court. And there were times when there were questions that came up as, you know, which way should we go? And I would pull out the mission statement and said, okay, here's our mission statement. We've agreed upon this, and this is our operating principle. Your question, does it accomplish what's in the mission statement? And that very often answered the question. And if it if if we were consistent with that, then you're then you know what the answer is. If it's inconsistent with that, you know what that answer is, and we need to come up with another solution that's consistent with the mission statement. So the mission statement is the first thing in my mind to guide the direction of the of the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the it's the anchor. It's the keystone. Yes, it a is. A lot of it. Yes. Um, did you find one of the things we talked to our students is when we were talking about evidence, because evidence is really important, evidence-based decision-making, how you collect data, how you use data, how you tell someone the data isn't good, what the assumptions are, all of that. Have you found a willing audience to listen to that? Because, you know, our students are in this arena now where it's, uh, well, don't believe that or don't believe that or people shop to what they want to believe in. Uh, so when you have something that's evidence-based, and uh, especially with uh, the divert court and what you did there. Um, Do you find that people accept that, uh, or do you have to do extra work to try to convince them that what this data really means? Depends on the person. Mm -hmm. If somebody's philosophically opposed to what you're doing, they will come up in their minds with a reason to not believe it. For example, we had a county commissioner at the time who, um, this is hard to express it's, it's kind of shocking uh, we were going to the commissioner's court giving him periodic updates on these studies and he the, just the studies for the divert court for the divert court uh-huh. yes yeah. and so the 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 kids who were doing the uh, the students who were doing the um, recidivism study went to kind of give an update and he just attacked them and he attacked the students yes and he and another one just attacked them 
And um, I felt so sorry for them because when they left and went in a side hallway, they just burst into tears. Mm. And, you know, that's okay. So that, that's Was he nice. questioning their methodology or um, or just the, the reason they did it? Or do you remember what they— uh, some, yeah. uh, some nonsense. I, I don't remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just nonsense. In fact, I, I think I told them, y'all, just, you know what? We need to go. And, oh, you had uh, to cut it short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, you know, there's no need in, yeah. in, in us doing this because this is not productive. And even though they were county commissioners and I was a state district judge, I, I had no problem in cutting them off. Um, in fact, one of them got to the point where I wouldn't even answer his questions. Wow. He would ask me a question, and I just wouldn't say anything. And finally, See, these... one of the one of the others next to him said, he's not going to answer your question, and had to get him off of it because it was just nonsense. I mean, they weren't— they weren't designed to 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 elicit something useful. It was an attack, mm-hmm. and the tone and the questions were attacks. And and the, I wasn't the only one he treated that way. He treated most people that way. So um, the whole audience understood what was going on. But and those are people that our students are going to have to work with. I mean, yes, well, not really. Well, he's, I mean, he's maybe no not him, but I'm, yeah. I'm not him. But I'm yeah. thinking in the policy arena, when you're thinking about you're, you're having evidence, you've done work, you've got an option and a way to approach a problem, right. there's going to be those who right away are willing to talk to you. Then there's going to be those in the middle kind of waiting to see what you have to say. We had a lot of those. And then there's going to be those who will never listen to you. And well, so those are the things of yeah. how we approach those different Well, let me tell you clusters. about one of those who will never listen. So one of those attackers that day um, retired and became a state rep. And I was in a meeting in the legislature. Back then, I was here all the time in Austin uh, when we were trying to figure out how not to build those 17,000 prisons and uh, prison beds. And um, we were in a meeting, and he spoke up. And I was like, uh, this isn't going to you know, go well. And he started by saying, you know, I was very skeptical about all this in the beginning. And I said some things that uh, showed it. He said, but I've thought about it. I've looked at it. And uh, John, and I want to tell everybody here that what he's done is good work. And it's what we need to continue to do. And he, he may have even, I don't know, he may have said, I apologize or something. But wow. the bottom line was it was a 180-degree turn um, for him. And so he started off an extreme skeptic. In fact, yes. he, he would describe himself as the most conservative person on, you know, in the United States. And um, so, you know, he, he would accuse us of cherry-picking uh, so we could create success. I said, no, it's based on a clinical assessment, and only those mm-hmm. who need clinical intervention are put into the program. If, you, if, you, if you're walking around with your cousin's jacket that you just put on and it's got drugs in it and you don't know they're there, you can't get into this program because you don't need treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, we, you know, this is a drug treatment court with the emphasis on treatment. I said, and if you think that we're cherry picking and these people are easy, why don't you just come spend some time with us and go through the staffings and come to court and see that we sometimes have to sanction people and we have to do various and sundry things. We have to take them out of outpatient and put them into inpatient because that was inadequate. And so it's not cherry picking. But, you know, at that point in time, that's all he wanted to believe was that. We were somehow some, you know, liberal 
bunch of knuckleheads mm-hmm. coming around trying to fool everybody just so we could get money to continue doing something. But he changed. Well, that's it. I mean, that's a good story. That's a good yes. outcome. Because sometimes when you're talking to people, you really don't know how they're taking that information and storing it no. and whether it'll come out again. So the fact is just having the faith that if you can talk to some people and talk to people objectively, using yes. objective things, that eventually— some may never get it, but eventually some may hear other stories like this, and yes. it reinforces that. So that's that's a really good outcome. The, yeah, but I it's think, a good story about it, him, too. It is, and I was just going to say that, too, that you have yeah. somebody who recognizes that, wow, you know, maybe I wasn't totally right on this, and I need to think about it. So I think fundamentally we have to have faith that this is the type of thing that works. Um, we could talk for a long time, but I have to ask you, I really want one. Why okay. did you go into law? Why did you choose law? That's a good question. And you stayed in it, so you've been persistent. You've been in the legal arena <laughs> for a long thing time. I know, first of all. <laughs> well, <laughs> so no. You, as you a young man, you know. <laughs> well, as a young man, why did you decide this is what I want to do? You know, I I really don't remember. My mother tells me that I went to a court with a friend who was a lawyer and saw what was going on and somehow liked it or thought I liked it. Um, you know, I don't mean to to speak down about the a philosophy degree, but when you get a degree in philosophy, there's not a whole lot you can do with that. So I wound up in law school, but I always had this idea that I wanted to go, but I can't. It's been so long now. You've know, been licensed almost 33 yeah. years, so. But you have a you stayed in it. Uh, I mean, it's 33, it, almost 37 years. Well, actually. you've been yeah. you've. You've been in all the different levels that you can be, the high level now and being yes. the district attorney. So staying in the law and having faith in the rule of law. Well, that's something successful. that's been part of. Yeah, the other thing that helps is I, I, I was successful as a prosecutor. I mean, in less than seven years, I was um, a supervisor and trying death penalty cases, and that didn't happen back in that era. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was for 18 months a criminal defense lawyer, and I did fairly well at that for short, you know, you can't really get things going in 18 months. But then I became a judge and then with all the programs and the change, my own interchange about how to look at the law and how to look at outcomes and understand outcomes. You know, we're not taught that. You're not taught that in law school and you're Mm -hmm. not taught that as a judge. But I did get it through the drug court trainings. And then I became a trainer. I saw that, too, that trying to take your experiences and your knowledge and expertise and putting them in different settings. Yes. Uh, And so it helped me. And when I had to work with different groups of individuals from different parts of the country, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So you would have seven or eight people brought in who were going to be the drug court team. And if you think that all of them are on board, that's rarely the case. It could be the defense attorney who's not on board. It could be the treatment provider who's not on board or a lot of times the judge because who's going? nobody's telling me what to do. Right. And, well, this is a collaborative effort. We're going to get mm-hmm. assessments and we expect you to read the assessment and make a decision. Um, so there were, you know, I, I was successful at that and and had success at it, and then and made differences. And made differences. you had to see that the outcomes were good. Yeah. So I yeah. remember when I brought the studies to Pete Gallegos in Austin mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, and the reason I went to Pete was because somebody says he's a mover and a shaker, and he works at both sides, and he's the guy to talk to. 
So I remember, <laughs> you know, I caught him and, you know, got his attention. I said, I'm John Crusoe. I'm a district judge in Dallas, and we have this program, and we have these outcomes. I had two executive summaries. And so he kind of looked at them, and, and, and he said, tell me that again. And I said, well, it's 68% reduction in recidivism and the cost-benefit analysis. And he, he says, and tell me your name again. I said, I'm John Crusoe, and you're a district judge in, in Dallas? I don't know you. I said, no, I don't. That, yeah. But no, how did you? And so I told him whatever it was, why I picked him. And um, he, he's, he's like, come with me. And so he's taking me around the inner corridors of the Capitol and, and saying, hey, so-and-so, come here. I want you to meet this judge from Dallas. And he's got this program, and he starts talking about the numbers. And said, we need to look into this. He becomes your lobbyist. <laughs> well, and so we did this five or six times. And, and, and so we stopped somewhere, and he says, um, let me tell you what I'm doing. He says, um, I'm trying to explain to people, and we'll go into this. I'll study this and have the staff study this in more detail. He said, but we've never had a judge come to Austin and want to talk about something other than a pay raise or increasing benefits. And you've come here to talk about something that reduces crime and saves money. And nobody's ever done that, and especially not with these numbers. This is amazing. And so if you've got that going, we we need to do this. So even within the state of Texas, you know, I became kind of famous and we mm-hmm. came down and um, I was on the Judicial Advisory Council for the Board of Criminal Justice. And so at that time, Bonita White was the director. She's retired and she was very proactive in having us, uh, I say us, a handful of judges uh, go before the legislature and explain what we needed to reduce prison population to not build those 17,000 beds. And so you develop that too. And then I was teaching mm-hmm. um, around the United States. And then and then we developed this 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 whole module, teaching module for evidence-based sentencing practices for judges. And so we did that. We did it in Texas. We did it in other states. And but it, then it got to be 22 years in, and and I'm like, okay, I, I can run again. I can, I'll be elected. I won't have an opponent. But it's time to move on and let somebody else do Take this. Take it over. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. You know. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind term limits for judges. Hmm. And um, I think term limits might be a good thing. I'm not saying that it has to be a short period of time, but at some point in time, we need new blood in our public policy positions. And um, and so anyway, I believe that about myself. And and the other thing was I had a a son who was in high school and and you know, I had to pay for college, mm-hmm. and it's hard to pay for college uh, when you're divorced. You lose money, and then also try to pay for college on that salary because I wanted him to be able to go to the best school he could get in, wherever that was. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that it was time to move on, and I went into private practice for six years. And so my private practice um, was successful also because I I treated my clients the same way I treated anybody else. And so the vast majority of my clients um, had a full psychological assessment. They had a risk assessment, they had needs assessment, and whatever the recommendations were, uh, we followed them. 
and we put them in there. And so in, te- in Dallas, um, a lot of the drug cases, there's a big lag between arrest and the testing and it going to the grand jury. So what I did was I took advantage of that lag, that several month lag to get this done, get the assessments done, put them into treatment. Ah, so by the time they got to the the grand jury, jury, yeah. I had somebody who had completed treatment, and I'd write a a nice Mm -hmm. letter to the grand jury saying, look, mission accomplished. We don't need the criminal Mm -hmm. justice system to accomplish the goal, Mm -hmm. and they'd be no build. So I got a reputation (laughs) for doing that. And then I got hired on four murder cases. I got all of them no build. (laughs) So there were a lot of different cases that I was able to um, keep from going to court. And so um, D Magazine does a best lawyer thing every year. I saw that. Yeah, Yeah, so I got that like four years in a row. And so that helps. And so it really helped me because I, I, I didn't have to do court appointments. And so I didn't have to be beholden to the judges or the prosecutors. I didn't get mixed up in all that mess that goes on down there with that. And I was able to not have a slew of clients where you're just running all over the place and having to compromise your time and yeah. your abilities and really focus on what was needed for the case and investigate the case properly, et cetera. So I was really a one-man show. I mean, it was my computer and me. And um, I, it was a digital practice. I didn't have files. I did at first, and then I got away from that. And I could take my phone to the courthouse, and if somebody asked me a question about a case or needed a document, I could open up Dropbox, or I could open up my mail and mm-hmm. attach it from Dropbox and send it to them. And so it was quite easy uh, for me to practice law in that way. And then I just decided that um, looking at the district attorney's office and the state of criminal justice in the state of Texas, that um, I wanted to, to make a change. And the only way to do that at the next level was to be the district attorney of Dallas County. And so that's here you that are. my motivation. And here I am today. Here yeah, you right. are. Yeah. Well, I think Dallas County's in store for a really interesting uh, next few years. And they have too. a they have a great <laughs> no you know you're just a very thoughtful, uh, very accomplished individual and trying to take those accomplishments and take them to the next level. So I really appreciate you taking time to share your experience, sure. uh, your thoughts, um, your ambitions uh, with us, and uh, I hope you come back anytime when you're here to come visit us. Thank Absolutely, you, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.